The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning again. Welcome to Morgan Hill Bible Church. So good to see you. Trust lots of you had a great 4th of July celebration. For some of you, that involves going to bed early and trying not to be woken up by fireworks. And some of you were the ones setting off the fireworks, raking, waking up the rest of us who have little children who are saying things under our breath that shouldn't be repeated. Oh, look, they muted me. I was going to say something. So I'm back like, careful, careful, edit. Hey, one of, um, for me, if, if you don't know, I talk about them a lot because my life lot revolves around them a lot. But I have two little kids. My, my youngest is almost one and my oldest is three. And one of the, the fun things about having little kids is to watch just their development, especially um, for me, the three-year-old, as she just starts to invent all sorts of different games in life. Right, like you have organized games, and lots of us, you know, there's there's games and athletic sports things, but the games that toddlers play are the most ridiculously fun, and it's hilarious just to watch their imaginations go and what becomes games in your family. My favorite game that our oldest Aria plays is there's certain spots in our house. Sometimes it's if we're in the backyard, it's she's up against the fence when we're sitting, you know, about 15 feet away in the couch. Inside, it's when she goes to the stairs and we're sitting in the couch and she calls it the big hug game. She'll go big hug, big hug, and we'll go, okay. And when she was little, it was always count to 10. Now she'll tell us what number she wants us to count to. And she'll be like, count to 11, and we'll do one, two. And when we get to 11, she'll run down, and everyone who's there, if it's just me, she comes to me. If it's mom, dad, grandparents, everyone puts her arms wide, and she picks who she runs to and gives a big hug. It is the best game in the world. I'm like, child, you will still be playing this when you're 16 because your dad will need some big hugs from you. Right? I love these games. But there's another game that, kids come up with that no one has to teach them. And you played it too as a kid, and it's called The Blame Game. Anyone remember that Berenstein Bears book? Maybe you read it to your kids, or you maybe remember from your childhood, The Berenstein Bears, The Blame Game, where nothing is my fault. It's my brother's fault. It's my sister's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. No one teaches our kids how to play these games, but they get the blame game down pretty quick. But here's the thing, we don't leave the blame game behind as kids. We still play it as adults, right? The blame game is as old as human history. It was the first game ever played. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? If you don't know the story, they fell into sin. They ate of the tree. God showed up. And what did Adam do in response to God calling him out? He blamed first his wife. It was the woman you gave me. And then second, he blamed God. It was the woman, hey, you gave her to me, God. This is the woman's fault and your fault. It's not my fault. And intrinsically, we all play the blame game in our lives as well, because when it comes to it, we can't bear the thought of having guilt on us. We can't bear our own guilt, and so we have to deflect it somewhere. And our our human reaction is to push it off towards others. And we do this as adults. Well, I wouldn't have done that if, if my boss hadn't done this. I wouldn't have responded this way, spouse, if you hadn't done this first. If the kids would only do that, then I would be happier. We blame other people all the time. But the reality is, is that there is guilt. There's wrongdoing, what the Bible calls sin in our lives. And so the question that we're going to look at this morning in which the Old Testament will start to point forward to is how does God save people who are guilty like us? 
We blame others for why we are the way we are and why we have the shortcomings that we do. But how does God deal with guilty people and make them clean? If you have your Bible this morning, open it up to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, which is, if you know where Psalms, Proverbs is, it's one of the two, those are there. It's the first prophetic book after that. Isaiah, we're going to be in chapter 53 this morning. We're in the middle of our foretold series. We actually have two weeks left this week and next. And we're going to be in this chapter. We're actually going to start in chapter 52, verse 13. But we're going to be in Isaiah 53 for the next two weeks because it was too good to do in just one week. I didn't want us to be here for two hours this morning. So I'm like, all right, we'll just do it for two weeks. That works. Isaiah 53, as I was reading and studying, one scholar called this passage the summit of all Old Testament prophetic literature. Another said that this passage is the most central, the deepest, the loftiest thing that Old Testament prophecy has ever achieved. And it's my hope this morning that as we read from this well-known passage and study it, that we would see the depths of the love that God has for us and respond in belief and surrender of our lives to him. This passage is incredible because perhaps like no other passage, not just in the Old Testament, but perhaps like no other passage in all of the Bible, are we called to just stand and marvel at what Jesus has done for you and I. To stand and soak in and take in what was accomplished for you and for me on the cross. And so let's dive in in Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13. It says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. There's three characteristics of this Messiah that's coming that, that Isaiah highlights in this passage. And first off, he, he highlights this, the shock of the servants. The shock of the servant. The servant here is, is, the, is language that Isaiah has introduced several chapters before that he uses in this section of his book to talk about this promised one, this Messiah that is to come. And he says in, in verse 13, that this servant, this figure that they were at the time looking forward to will be high and lifted up. High and lifted up. This phrase occurs nowhere else in scripture outside of the book of Isaiah, that that this, this character will be high and lifted up. And in Isaiah, it always refers to God. It's in chapter 33 and chapter 57. And the most well-known quote of this is in Isaiah chapter six, where Isaiah sees he's called in before the throne room of God. And he says, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. It's a a claim of, of God's divinity and of his royalty. And here, this same servant who is to come is high and lifted up. He's clearly saying that this one who comes, the Messiah, will be truly God himself. One of the actions of of this Messiah in verse 15 is that he will sprinkle many nations. Now, for many of us, that kind of phrase maybe goes over our head. Like, what is he talking about? Sprinkling nations? Like, it's going to rain? Like, what, what is going on with sprinkling nations? Well, the, the idea of sprinkling ties in to the Old Testament Levitical system as often sacrifices were given and sprinkling of both water and of blood played a crucial role in how the sacrifice was applied to the people. 
Most likely, Isaiah here is thinking of a specific sacrifice on, that the Israelites would offer on the Day of Atonement, a holiday you may know still celebrated today called Yom Kippur, in which sacrifices were brought, they were, animals were killed upon the altar, and then the high priest would take blood from the sacrifice, walk around to certain areas of the tabernacle or later the temple, and sprinkle blood in certain places. And by the sprinkling of the blood, it was a sign that you've been made clean, your sin has been covered. And so Isaiah is saying this, this one who's to come will cover the sin, will bear the sin of many people, not just of those who are of Israel, but of, of many nations, that this figure would bring healing and transformation to all people. There, there's a phrase there, though, in verse 14 that, that kind of cruxes the passage, as many were astonished at you astonished or shocked or held back at, at, what, at what this Messiah would be like. And there's, there's several different reasons, and he gets into this in these two verses, on, on why this Messiah to come would be a shocking or an astonishing figure. The first, which is clearly talked about there in verse 14, especially as we look forward, if you know the story of Jesus' crucifixion, the first shock or astonishment of this Messiah is the physical disfigurement of Jesus on the cross. He's clearly talking about, and Jesus will fulfill this prophecy of of Jesus's appearance when he goes and is dying for our sins, that his appearance is so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And we know that when Jesus was crucified, he wasn't just hung on the cross to die, but he was ruthlessly beaten and insulted. And he didn't look like someone nice and clean hanging up there on the cross, but he looked horrible. You know how you cover your kid's eyes if you're a young parent like me and you cover your kid's eyes when certain things come on TV? Like many of you, because you're good people, I'm sure most of your TV watching this day is the Tour de France because that's what we should all be watching as cycling fans. We should all be watching the Tour de France every day. And for whatever reason, because it's on the streaming service that provides the coverage is, I guess, I didn't know there was this. I've never watched any of them. But you remember that Chucky the Doll thing? There's a TV show on the streaming service. Like every other commercial is suddenly this doll going around. And like every time it comes on and I'm still watching it when my oldest is there, I'm like covering her eyes. Like, don't look, don't look like you don't need to be worried. You don't need to see this. When parents walked by the cross as Jesus hung, He wasn't way up on some hillside far away. He was put right on the main road. When parents would have walked by, they would have covered their kids' eyes. Don't look. That's too traumatic. You don't don't need to see that because that that will scar you. That will live in your memory. What Jesus looked like is he was hanging and dying for us on the cross. Another shock and astonishment of this Messiah is the extent of the reach of the message and impact that he would have. That, that he will sprinkle not just Israel and cover their sins, but, but beyond that. In fact, it's, it's this very idea that, that Paul picks up in Romans chapter 15 when he's offering his defense on why God has called him to go and preach the gospel, not just to Jews, but specifically to Gentiles, those who are outside of the nation of Israel. And he argues it throughout Romans chapter 15. And the conclusion of his argument is this in Romans 15, starting in verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. All those who have never heard 
will understand. He quotes from Isaiah 52, verse 15, as why the gospel must go not just to the people of Israel, but to the whole world as well. And this would have been a shocking thing to people of this time, that this long-awaited Messiah to come wasn't just coming for Israel, but was coming to be the savior of the world, would come to save any and all who would place their faith in Jesus. Not only is there the shock of, the, of what Jesus would have looked like, the shock of how far the gospel would go, but the message of the gospel itself is a shocking message. The message of the gospel itself is a shocking message. If like me, you've been raised and been in church so long, we need to stop back and think like the gospel doesn't make sense from how we write and tell stories, right? Because what, what would most things be? Oh, we messed up, so we have to do enough to do enough to be good so that God would forgive us based on our own merit and our own, and our own doing. The gospel is you're helpless, and so God comes and takes your place and dies for your sin. That makes no sense. It doesn't make sense. It's not a, if you told this story, people are like, yeah, it does make sense. No, no one's going to believe it, which is the reality of, of the gospel message. 1 Corinthians 1 puts it this way, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly or foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The gospel is an astonishing message. It doesn't make sense that the God of the universe would come and die for me. That doesn't make sense, but it is an astonishing message of what this Messiah will do that he will be so disfigured that we would hide our eyes from him. Yet through what he's done, the gospel would go forth and transform not just the lives of those who are of the nation of Israel, but anyone who would believe in Jesus. An astonishing, shocking message of the servant. The next thing we see is as we continue is in chapter 53, starting at verse, starting at verse one, says this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry grounds. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as whom from men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The second incredible thing we see in this passage is the sorrow of the servants. The sorrow of this servant Messiah who is to come for his people. There's this shift here that happens in this, starting about how this message will go out and kings will hear of it. The lives of many will be transformed outside of Israel. But yet in verse one, the question here is asked, well, who's gonna believe? To whom has this been revealed? And this is already hinting at the idea, which, which Jesus will pick up later on in the Gospels record for us, that the rejection of Jesus isn't first by the Gentiles, but it happens in the nation of Israel itself. In fact, Jesus uses his passage to quote this in, in John chapter 12. It says this, though he had done many signs before them, 
We've taught in the Gospel of John a lot in the couple of years I've been here, but if you don't know or haven't been a part of that, signs were, were the miracles, the things that Jesus specifically did to prove that he was God and he was the Messiah, right? There's a few recorded in scripture, but at the end of the Gospel of John, it says Jesus did so many signs that the whole book couldn't contain the scrolls of them. There was no shortcoming of Jesus's evidence of the signs, the things he did that people would believe that he is God and he is the Messiah to come. So Jesus did many signs before them of those who were of the house of Israel. They still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the Lord, the arm of the Lord been revealed? Romans 10, 16 also uses this same verse in Isaiah 53 to show that many in Israel were the first to reject Jesus. He's a man of sorrows, a grief, acquainted with them well. See, the rejection of, of Jesus, though, if you, if you know the story, it wasn't just by people who are of Jewish descent. It goes much closer to home than Jesus than that. His hometown, where he grew up, not in a huge metropolitan place. It was a very small, quaint town. I visited it before in person. They estimate the population maybe was a 1,000 people. Not a big area. Yet when Jesus rose and proclaimed his message, they rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with him. Not only did his hometown reject him, if you know the story, his family thought he was crazy, right? Literally in Mark chapter three, his family comes to, to seize is the word, not just to kind of like, hey, Jesus, can we have a conversation with you? Because the stuff you're saying and doing, it's kind of funky. It says they come to seize, which basically is the same word as like arrest, grab him, pull him back. And their reasoning is because he is out of his mind. That's what his family is thinking about him. His own family rejects him in his ministry on who he is. The pastor says that he is like a root out of dry ground, like a young plant. He doesn't come as like some towering tree or some large fruit tree. That maybe would be in the metaphor of a prophetic literature, what we'd expect, but he's this little root that popped up where we wouldn't expect it to come. Think back again to Jesus's arrival into this world. A backwoods town, no glitz, no glamour, not born in a palace, not born to a wealthy family, not at all. He's a man in verse two who has no form or majesty that we should look at him. When we would look at Jesus, if you were alive in that day, you wouldn't have seen him, but been like, huh, that guy's the son of God. Look how good looking he is, right? It's not like today where you can almost always pick if you throw on a movie and you know nothing about it. The moment that great looking character walks out, you're like, they must be the main character. We're like, I don't know who's going to replace James Bond and be the next new James Bond, but I guarantee it's not going to be someone who's like 25 pounds overweight and not good looking, right? It's going to be like, oh, wow, that person is attractive and good looking. Why? Because we're drawn to people like that. We naturally are. And that's who the main character is. Jesus wouldn't have been the main character if we would have been casting him in his own movie. He's not good looking enough. He, he doesn't fit our things. Saul and David in the Old Testament are precursor to this. Saul, the first king of Israel, fits the image. He's tall. He's good looking. He's like Ben Palm, right? Tall, good looking. <laughs> Except spiritually not, right? But you get it. He stood head and shoulders above the rest. He was a king like how the nations wanted. And here's David, who we're told is a good looking king, but not, not at all on the outside what people would have thought. Jesus is not physically what the people would have expected, and because he's not what, what the people or what we would have expected, look at the response to Jesus. These five statements at the end in, chapter, in verse three. 
He was despised. He was forsaken or rejected by man. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As to one, men hide their faces. He's despised and we esteemed him not. We can just picture that this, this prophecy invites us to sit at the foot of the cross and listen to the shouts of those jeering and mocking him as he hangs on the cross. Get, get off the cross. If you're the son of God, why can't you save yourself? See, we're only recorded a few of these words, but undoubtedly, these are just summarizing the cries that so many would have hurled out and insulted as Jesus was there on the cross. It says in verse three that Jesus is a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows. Some translations, which is another good way to put it, say that Jesus is a man of suffering. A man of sorrows or a man who knows suffering well. If you think about it, as as Jesus, there was much of his life that involved pain and suffering. The suffering and humility it took for him, God of the universe, eternity past to come and to take on human flesh. Jesus in this life suffered all that humanity suffers. He got sick. As you can see, I'm not all the way there today. He got sick. He didn't feel good. He lost friends that he loved. He lost a parent. We know that at least his dad most likely died during his life. He had all of the physical and mental and and emotional ailments and hardships that you and I struggle with. He was a man who knows what it's like to live life and suffer. He didn't go through skating by with a silver spoon in his mouth and no problems. He worried sometimes probably where his next meal would come from. He didn't know. He's a man of, of sorrow and suffering. And of course, points to as a man of sorrows, of course, points to the cross which yes, the physical pain of the cross, but as Ben did such a great job last week recording one of those cries of the cross in Psalm 22, it wasn't just the physical pain and suffering that Jesus was going through, but the spiritual weight of bearing the cross as he cried out in Psalm 22 and Jesus quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hangs there on the cross, dying for you and for me. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, And yet those who saw him on the cross laughed and mocked him. They didn't stand up for him. They they jeered at him. But there's a turn that takes place. Why was Jesus so despised? Why was Jesus not esteemed? Why was he so close and affiliated to suffering? And the turn comes in verse 4. Why was Jesus like this? Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, why was Jesus so close with suffering? It's because thirdly, we see the substitution of the servant. The substitution, he he was a man of sorrows. Why? Because verse four says that he carried our sorrows. 
Why was Jesus, in a sense, so familiar with suffering? Because on the cross, he wasn't there for himself. He was there for us. It's not his grief that he carried, but it was our grief that he carried and bore on the cross. Now, this passage is highlighting two important things about Jesus, the Messiah's life and ministry. First, as we see there, that it's by his wounds that we are healed that Jesus is and always has been a healer, that that is who God is, that he heals people of their brokenness and sickness. Now, this just doesn't talk about spiritual, although we're going to get there, it certainly does. But this also includes that Jesus is the healer of physical problems as well. And this passage is referenced in the New Testament to prove this. In Matthew chapter 8, is a story all about, in the whole chapter, about Jesus healing people. First, he cleanses and heals a leper, someone who had been an outcast, this incurable skin disease, and Jesus heals them. The next miracle we see is there, there's a centurion who comes to Jesus and says, my servant is paralyzed and sick. Jesus heals him and doesn't even go physically to the house. He says, your faith, I'm healing him. He heals him again. And then in Matthew 8, the next story right after, in verse 14, it says this. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The Jesus is a God who heals us. And yes, we are blessed nowadays to live in a world where doctors and modern medicine can heal us, but we should never think that our illnesses are beyond what Jesus could heal in our lives. And I just want to encourage you for those maybe who are struggling with things or have close family members who are, don't forget that Jesus is still a healer today. He can still heal now. doesn't mean he will. It doesn't mean that when you pray, he's obligated to do what you ask him to do. But we, we've lost our minds if we think this was just back then and Jesus can't still do this now. He always has been and always will be a healer, including the physical ailments that you and I struggle with. But this passage not only speaks that Jesus will come to physically heal, but it speaks to what he will do for our hearts, our souls, as well. Notice how, how honest this passage starts with and, and continues to be throughout about our spiritual condition. N- notice, notice there the word our occurs over and over again. Verse four, our griefs, our sorrows. Verse five, our transgressions, our iniquities. Verse six, the iniquity of us all. See, the, the, the reality is if we're to understand the magnitude of what Jesus has done on the cross, we first need to understand the magnitude of our own sin. And too often in our world, because we like to deflect blame, we don't, we don't name sin in, our, sin in our lives for what it is. We minimize our sin by excusing it away, by blaming it on our circumstances. We blame it on our parents. We blame it on how we were raised. We blame it on the people around us. Another thing we do to get away from our sin is we rename our sin in culturally acceptable ways, right? Well, that's just something I have to go to therapy for. Therapy is great and it can help a lot of people, but it doesn't affect the sin in your life. You'll still have it, right? Well, this, this, is, just, this is just who I am, right? I, I, I'm, just, I, I'm just an addict like this. I can't help myself. 
And, and we, instead of saying, no, I struggle with this sin issue, we, we reframe it to try and make it palatable to us and to the people around us. But the reality is we have to be honest with our sin. And when we minimize our sin, we minimize the cross. When you minimize your sin, you minimize what Jesus actually has come to do for you and for me. It's not that we glory in our sin, not saying, look how bad I am. But we need to be honest with ourselves. That yeah, we, we have iniquities and transgressions. Those are the biblical words for sin. That's wrongdoing. That's the things that you and I have done out of selfish motivations that defy what God has had us to do. That each and every one of us have missed the mark. We've not done it how God has called us to. We considered this man to be smitten by God, but why was he up there? He was doing it for us. See, Jesus was our substitute on the cross. Notice the language again, the he versus our language in verses four to six. Our griefs are what he bore. Our sorrows are what he carried. Our transgressions were the reason that he was pierced. Our iniquities were the reasons that he was crushed. Our iniquity is the reason that Jesus hung on the cross. Peter picks this up. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this, referencing Isaiah 53, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That you and I are wandering our own way, but on the cross, Jesus took our place. It was my sin. It was your sin. That's why he hung there. That's why he was pierced. That's why he was crucified so that he would do it for you. And he did it for me. An example of, of our condition, our spiritual condition is, is there in verse 53, verse six. All of us, not just the nation of Israel, but all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. There's an expression that pulls up multiple times throughout scripture. And it's one of an expression meant to convey utter helplessness and hopelessness for people. And it's when they say they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's throughout the Old Testament. Jesus looks at the people and he weeps. He says, because they're like sheep without a shepherd. They have no hope. It's an expression of utter hopelessness for people who are, who are like sheep just wandering about. It's a cultural metaphor because they lived in an agricultural world. Sheep would have been everywhere. And when they got, oh man, you're wandering like a sheep, they would have rightfully, readily understood. It's not a good thing. Like you're hopeless if you're wandering around like a sheep and thinking you're gonna get somewhere where you go. Since sheep aren't exactly the smartest creatures, but they're something we're not well familiar with in our culture, I came across a video. This is, I think, about two years old. If you're wondering, what, what does it look like to wander like a sheep. I think this well illustrates each and every one of our wandering and our spiritual condition. I love the slow-mo at the end. 
That's what it looks like to wander as a sheep without a shepherd. That you're in a ditch, and the moment you get out, you think you're free, and you find yourself buried right back in another ditch. That's how we look, trying to run our own lives. And some of us have dug ditches in our lives that our heads are stuck so far down into that we can't get out of it ourselves. And even if we were somehow able to pull ourselves out, we just jump right back into another one. We've seeking after fulfillment and meaning to, to fill this void in our life with things, some of them good things. We've drowned ourselves in the ditch of success, of work, of our lives revolving around how good of a parent we are or how good of a spouse we are. Others of us have fallen into a different ditch, the ditch of addiction, of alcohol, of drugs, of mindless, numb scrolling through and just being entertained to death. Meanwhile, we have this guilt problem, every single one of us, that we're like a sheep wandering about, falling into holes, can't do it on our own. See, Isaiah 53 verses four to six makes it clear that when we see Jesus, Jesus just didn't come to die for anyone's sin. He came to die for your sin. He came to die for my sin. The message of the gospel is we see what Jesus did on the cross, that he hung there because of my wrongdoing. He wasn't pierced because of what he had done. He was pierced because of what I've done. And it calls on us first to marvel at what that means that the God of the universe loves you so much that he came to die for you. And then afterwards, it calls us to believe, to believe in what he's done for you. You're like that sheep. You're never gonna get your life together on your own. You just can't do it. And so today, would you believe? Would you believe in what Jesus has done for you on the cross? that the life he has can be yours because he died for your sin. He took your place and it's through him that you can be healed. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? This morning you're saying, man, I, I've been trying so hard. I've been running, trying to save myself my whole life but I find myself just like that sheep jumping into ditch after ditch and I can't get it together on my own. I, I want to give my life to Jesus today. I just want to pray for you this morning. If that's true of you, would you simply just raise your hand today so I can pray for you with every head bowed and every eye closed. Amen. Amen. For those of you who raised their hands, would you just pray this prayer with me? Jesus, I thank you for what you've done for me. That you came and you died on the cross. And you died for my sin. Jesus, you died in my place. I believe in what you've done for me. And that it's through your sacrifice that I can be healed. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. May we never cease to marvel as we look at the cross that you were there for me. You died for my sin. God, would we never take it for granted? 
Would the cross never cease to inspire us to worship, to praise, to give you all we are? Because that's what you're worthy of. And we praise you for the cross. We praise you for what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.